the sale, if it's the right deal, is I'm here to make you money. If you don't want to make money, that's fine. But I'm here to make you money. And all I have to do is convince you that this has the right risk reward formula. Your network is your net worth. Come listen to some of the most successful people I know. Share invaluable knowledge, stories, and advice in real estate, business, and beyond. This is Weiss Advice. Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to another wonderful episode of Weiss Advice. I'm your host, as always, Yona Weiss. And with me today, I have a very special guest. We have Mayor Freed from Lightwater Capital. I am very excited to be talking to Mayor today because when we met in person uh, for the first time after many, many phone conversations over the years, we finally had a chance to meet in person a few months ago and we couldn't we couldn't stop talking. So I'm, I'm a little upset that this episode will only be a half an hour because who knows how long this can go. But without further ado, Mayor, how are you today? Yoda, it's great to be here. Great to talk to you. The pleasure is mine. I'm flattered that you felt I was worthy to have on the show. Um, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Well, if you guys don't know this already, and uh, you can't tell, he's very humble, and uh, his his reputation precedes him because he and his partner Joe Wasser have combined to buy over two hundred fifty million dollars in uh, in multifamily real estate over the past two years. So that's that's pretty pretty good for uh, a couple couple years. And he's been in the industry for close to ten years now, and has a great insight on a lot of different things related to real estate and the ins and outs, underwriting and everything in between. So I'm just excited to, to see where this conversation is going to take us. Where do you think it should go, Mayor? I'll let you, you lead the show this time. Um, <laughs> well, well, I guess the question is, what do people want to hear? Um, I have a lot to say. Typically, friends of mine um, never fail to remind me of the fact that I have a lot to say. Uh, a couple of years back, I actually made a brisk for my son in the evening. It was on a fast day. And I decided that instead of asking my father-in-law to say a few words or you know, it, because it was a sit-down dinner. Um, so instead of asking my father-in-law to say a few words, my father, and then having myself, people don't want to hear that much, you know, that many speeches. So I decided I would just speak myself two or three times. And and the um, the head of the biggest school in the community, Rabbi Yaakov Bender, showed up in the middle of my, the main speech, and he was sitting for a few minutes and a few more minutes, and then he turned to someone else and someone sitting next to him and said, "Does everyone do this in this community? He's, you know, this guy's going on and on. This isn't." And they said that I had spoken for about forty-five minutes straight, and that was a monologue, and that was part two of the the evening. Um, definitely more enjoyable to speak to someone, but, right. uh, yeah, absolutely all the way on. So, all right. so, so I'll throw out a question there and we'll see where this goes. I mean, you've been, you've been in the business for, for a while. You've seen some changes over the past couple of years, right? Obviously COVID threw a big wrench in a lot of people's deals. Uh, you guys are still buying and throughout COVID you guys were buying and, and, and underwriting deals and closing on deals. So my question to you is, did you see anything uh, during that time that actually, you know, changed the markets at all? Or were, is things going the same? Um, excellent question. Uh, so we we always give a lot of thought to you know, what's going on, what was happening in the past three to six months, what was happening over the past two to four years that has changed. 
Um, and what do we anticipate over the next three, six, 12 months, or, you know, up to 60 months? Um, and we always have our ear to the ground. And during the COVID process, it was actually a, a tremendous learning curve. So a little background about my partner and I, um, we were in this business doing third-party management. We would buy deals here and there, small deals locally in the community, teaming up with a singular investor. And it was about between anywhere between two and five hundred thousand dollars down payment on a, a deal that ranged from a million to three million. We went all the way up to ten million once, but that was really our bread and butter. It was primarily third-party management, and then buying deals on the side as some sort of a, a supplemental income. And then at some point, we decided that we really need to scale, and we need to focus on deals that are significantly larger. Um, and that was right around uh, in the middle of 2019. But being that we're very diligent and very methodical, we decided that we weren't going to just jump into something that that was different. Uh, in New York, the deals the deals typically are smaller unless you're dealing with the, the really really big boys in you know the office buildings in Manhattan and such. Um, so we took our time and we went out and we it took us a while. We went from market to market to find something that we really liked that we were really comfortable in with, and finally we found a deal. It was a high-risk deal, but we were management guys, so we were excited to take on like the, the biggest challenge. Even though it was the first one, we knew how to do this, 50% vacant, really good basis, numbers looked great, and we had everything lined up, and it was great. And, and the month was February 2020, right. and we had <laughs> put the deal on the contract. We were so excited. And we even brought on a lead investor who was going to partner. And, and it was, you know, we had set up the equity stack, debt, equity, perfect, beautiful. What, what could go wrong? Um, and I remember it was quite prescient that our, our lead investor made a comment at the end of our meeting saying, I love you guys. The deal looks great. Um, just one little caveat. I'm in unless this virus across the, the world in China which they say is going on. We, they don't know what to expect unless if it doesn't turn the world upside down, I'm in. And, and then uh, like it was a week later or two weeks later that the world shut down. And that was a, you know, that was a, a difficult pill to swallow. All the banks pulled the loans and you know, ultimately we parted ways with a reasonable uh, settlement. So the whole world shut down and, and um yeah, we decided it wasn't the right thing at the time to, to purchase that particular deal. It was a super high risk deal. Um, we lost some money, part of the part of the game. Um, but we did, we you know recouped and and collectively we had made a decision that this is an uncertain time. But it doesn't mean that you know life is not gonna life is not gonna just fall apart. People still need a place to live. Um, people are scared, but what's set to happen over the next the following three to six months things are there's pent-up energy people have been given money from the government they're they're at home people investment has stopped and we had really discussed over and over and over that this is really a very opportune time where values can just skyrocket and we had we had conversations about how the natural thing that should follow is that cap rates should compress because as as uh, volatile as the real estate industry was, the stock market was that much more so. And mm -hmm. we had people calling us regularly saying, I can't have my whole life savings in the stock market. I want to pull out and go into real estate. 
we had people in healthcare because all the way in the all the way in the beginning of COVID, people weren't sure if healthcare was going to swing one way or the other. People thought their 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 businesses were going to collapse. And I had some healthcare guys coming and saying, "I'm liquidating everything. I want to team up with you and get into multifamily real estate because, you know, it's an area where if you do it right, people always need a place to live. It's very very stable, and people were looking for that stability. So we had a certain uh, forecast where we expected that that cap rates were really going to compress and values would go up. Uh, unfortunately, we did not have the capital to buy a billion dollars worth of real estate at the time. Um, <laughs> a quarter you know, of that, we, not bad. A, a quarter of that, yeah. But it, but it, but that would it would have been nice to put together like a billion dollars in 2020. That would have been really really great because from the deals that we did put together. You know, like I mentioned, our largest deal prior was $10 million. So that was really where we wanted to focus on between $10 and $20 million. Uh, towards the end of 2020, we put together two deals, $11 million each, and we were very comfortable with them. We were very excited. There was all this risk in the contract because people didn't know if the mandates were going to be back on, back off, if people were going to vacate, if occupancy was going to drop from 95 to 70, nobody knew what was going on. And sellers did not want COVID to disrupt the contract. Um, so we had all this language negotiating back and forth. It was, it was, it was very uh, chaotic, um, but we closed on those two deals. And today we have both of those deals on the market. We have offers actually for both of them. One is selling for $22 million and the other one is selling for hopefully just over $20 million. That's so it's, it's wild. And I tell all my investors, this is not skill. This is luck. We're going to make money in the long term because we're skilled and we're really, really good at what we do. And I'm very proud of the work that we put in and our uh, know-how of the industry, but this is not skill. This was luck. Um, you know, my hope is that an $11 million deal could grow to 15 or 16 you know, that's forecasting, understanding the market. When in when in the matter of 18 months, it goes from 11 million to 22 million, you know, <laughs> pinch yourself and, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, go home and make a chayim. <laughs> that's great. That's a great story. And uh, it's incredible how unpredictable that, uh, that things have become. So, uh, right, right, right. So just to your, to your question, um, through COVID, we saw opportunity um, and we decided that we want to be very, very aggressive in capitalizing on those opportunities. The opportunities have changed. A lot of people, I know Ralph Hertzka says at every, not at every event that he speaks of, but probably every other event, uh, that someone told him in the late 80s that the real estate market is just too saturated and there's, there's no money to be made in real estate. The values are just too high. That's what someone told him, sagely advice back in the 1980s. So, you know, I, I know that from even from the time that we were doing these little deals, everyone was always saying that, oh, it can't go any higher. Can't go any higher. How could you buy today? I bought four years ago at this and this price. And what we found over the years were that the people with that attitude were just frozen. They were mm -hmm. frozen in fear. They were stuck in a certain, they were stuck in a time capsule of what values should be. And they couldn't disconnect. It was an emotional thing. So our attitude always has been that even if it feels strong, if you're underwriting well, if you're disciplined, you make sure you don't just chase the high values because you can sell it later. You stick to deals where worst case scenario, you hold it on, hold on to it for 10 years. If your investors can be happy with the 10-year hold period and the profits that the deal will throw off operationally, then you're in good shape. 
And then the rest is, uh, the rest is just a cherry on top. Yeah. So we stay disciplined and we look for our opportunities. And in times of uncertainty, like especially now, I don't know if you saw, I posted on LinkedIn last night. What do, what do people think of uh, rising interest rates and the fact that they're rising sooner, right. uh, faster than we anticipated? You know, for the whole year, pretty much since, you know, from when things got active again in, let's say, the summer of 2020 through now, while interest rates were still extremely low, every single guy and the mother was saying interest rates can't stay so low. They're going to rise. Right. So if you knew they were going to rise and now they went up. Why is everyone surprised? Right. Like, isn't isn't this what we were waiting for? Like, didn't we know that everyone was saying, so so what happened? Everyone said it was gonna happen, but secretly we were just hoping, oh, maybe they'll stay at three and a half percent forever. Um, but those that rise in interest rates has been in our model. We anticipated that it, that they were gonna go up. Some of our deals have fixed rate financing, some of it has floating. Um, but even in the deals that have floating, floating rates. Our expectation is, you know, look at the opportunity. People are getting, you know, people are, are freezing because of this volatility. But what about the fact that rents are still surging? So do yeah. you want to be left out in the cold because rents go up 5%, interest rates go up, you know, 150 basis points. That spread of, you know, that, that arbitrage of 350 basis points is just done because you, you froze because they went up once. Um, so just going to the times are changing. It's a very interesting time. People who aren't disciplined might get wiped out. I don't know. I hope not. I hope everybody really does well, but it's, it's a very interesting time. Things are changing. And we always felt like if you're going to, if you're going to be too scared, if you're going to be too cautious, if you're going to be that cautious investor, the cautious investors need to put their money in bonds and sit on the sidelines and that's just an attitude that some people have. And those people tend not to capitalize when the opportunities come come knocking. Yeah. So even if it's maybe a little bit more uh, aggressive than we should be, a tad more aggressive than we should be, that's a risk we have to take. And we feel like you know we're managers, we know the business. And if we take these risks, we'll be compensated just like we were when we took those risks smack in the middle of COVID. Right. Absolutely. And obviously it's calculated. Like you said, you're, you're doing the deals and you see a lot of people getting involved in real estate over the past few years, just like yourselves. And even throughout COVID, obviously changes are always going to happen. And the best time to invest is now, right? Or, or was you know 10 years ago, but the second best time right, is now. That, the best time was always 12 months ago or 36 months ago. Oh, the price is then. Okay. So go back in time and invest. <laughs> um, but otherwise, Otherwise, just make sure you're not saying that again in 36 months from now, because, exactly. you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. But either way, it's shame on me. Yeah, you only have <laughs> right. the present, act or don't act, but, you know, but either way, people will complain. So all good. Yeah, 100%. What's your favorite part? Obviously, you you get, you get said you focused a lot on the management side of things. You're involved a lot in the investor relations side of things as well. What's your the, your favorite part? If you could put something on that about the real estate investing? Oh, sure. So, so I would have to say the you know, my favorite part is really interacting with people. And when you probably the highlight of this kind of this kind of work is the fact that you get to deal with high net worth individuals, and you're not selling them something at their expense. The sale, if it's the right deal, is I'm here to make you money. If you don't want to make money, that's fine. 
but I'm here to make you money. And all I have to do is convince you that this has the right risk reward formula where we recognize the risk. It's not zero, right? If I'm telling you the risk is zero, then don't trust me with anything. There's a risk, but this is what the risk is. And the upside that we have, you know, it's just a favorable formula. It's, it's a, a risk reward um, ratio where the reward outweighs the risk. And because of that, I'm sure, I'm, I'm, you know, I can't imagine that my next deal will, will go sour, but I'm sure over the next hundred deals that I do, some, one of them will pan out. One, probably, probably one is the right number. <laughs> um, so we have to recognize that risk. But over time, any of our investors who regularly come in with us, they will see that our, you know, our upside is going to far outweigh any of the risk that comes along with it. So conveying that message is just, it's very thrilling, especially when they're asking questions and we have the right answers to their questions and knowing that you know, we're, we are comfortable in our craft. Uh, my partner and I have very different values that we bring to the table. So with there, there's no butting heads. You know, we have a mutual respect where he's a lot more on the ground and he can handle the tenants and the management and the day-to-day and the operations better than anyone I know. And when it comes to sitting in a meeting and going through the numbers, you know, it, it's it's thrilling when you pitch someone and they say, okay, I want to put $2 million with you guys. You know, there's no feeling like someone saying that I trust you with $2 million. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of money. And you know, when, when someone trusts you, it's very validating, obviously. The flip side is, and I'm I'm still not sure you know, why this I guess I have an idea of why this happens, but anytime we get a rejection, even on the most neutral, polite, nice kind of level, it feels like a blow to the stomach. It's like like we had an investor that said, sorry, we can't come in because we have a policy that we only invest with one sponsor in each region and we already have a sponsor in that region. So thank you for sending, but you know, we're not going to be able to take this deal. And for me, it was like, oh, I can't, I can't believe it. <laughs> can't believe it. We, we can't believe he didn't want to come in with us. It's like, it's like rejection at the most core level. Um, but they go hand in hand. So the, the thrill of, of winning and, and you know, getting someone to commit to us and invest with us is really, really exciting. And when you have a deal where you're coming in guns blazing, because this is the right deal, like this deal, uh, we're hitting the metrics, we're conservative in this respect, in that respect, and we put in the cushion and we know this might go wrong and that might go wrong, but we're still showing a good return. And we're showing good returns on conservative expectations that, you know, that really are going to be even better. And Mm -hmm. we really believe it'll be better. But we like to temper expectations of our investors. And then they come in with a question of, well, why did you do this? And why did you do that? And getting into the nitty gritty and showing that it's not just, we, we didn't just hire someone to put everything on a spreadsheet and say, we think it'll be worth more tomorrow. We really went through every single variable, every expense of what can get out of whack, where we're exposed. Um, you know, can the taxes jump up? Can insurance get out of hand? You know, lawsuits, the demographic, and the vacancy drop, all these things. And, and when you have an educated investor who really rips through it line by line, and we'll get that sometimes. We'll get a request of normally you know, I, I had my analyst go through it, and here's a list of questions. Like right. 17 questions, very, you know, very detailed. <laughs> and it'll take me an hour, but we go through and articulate like for every one of his one line questions, I have like a 10 line, you know, whatever. If you're going to ask me detailed questions, just be ready to read the answers because, right. <laughs> you know, 
But um, but yeah, it's really, you know, when you get into it and you know your craft, I heard a great saying uh, from Mark Cuban recently. He said that when people go into business, they're very often obsessed with what's their passion? What's their passion? They want to find something that they're passionate about. Right. He said, throw that all out. It's nonsense. You know what you're passionate about? You're passionate about something that you're good at because everyone has a passion to be good at something. So if you find something that you're good at, get into it because you're going to love it because everyone loves to be good at something. Mm -hmm. And if you have a chance to become a master of your craft, there is no better feeling than showing off your craft, saying, this is what I bring to the table. This is me. This is how I know. This is why I know. This is why you could have faith in me. And someone saying, you know what? That makes sense. And just to end my, uh, you know, my, my, my responses are generally like, like we mentioned a minute ago, you know, <laughs> I, I tend to just ramble. And my wife tells me that all the time. What are you talking um, about? I don't, I don't see that at all. <laughs> um, just to add one more uh, small point to that. Um, very often, like one of my, my key pitches, and we've had this as a policy in the company, is that anyone who's coming to look to invest, will ask them to, to take the number that they were thinking of investing, divide it by four or five, and then and 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 put that you know for for a start put in a much smaller number because mm-hmm. we could be salesmen we're good at what we do we know the lingo better than whoever we're meeting with who who's not a professional in the industry but don't trust me because of what I say trust me because you experienced it and right. the reason that sells is not because they have the time to wait three to five years to go through the entire cycle the reason that sells is because it's genuine and people could people could tell when you mean it. And this is why every single day I walk into the office and I have a fight with my analyst that he says, we find this deal that's pretty good and that deal that's pretty good. I know it's not as good as you normally like, but we could probably raise the money for it anyway. And I always tell him, unless I'm convinced that I could put in every dollar from my bank account into this deal, unless I believe it at that level, I can't sell it Mm -hmm. because I'm just going to lose the tone in my voice. I'm going to lose the energy. I'm going to lose the excitement. And people can tell because the truth sells, being genuine sells, people appreciate it. And they may not be able to pinpoint it, but the comfort level develops when they can tell that you mean what you say. 100%. I I couldn't agree more with that. And I love the point you made from Mark Cuban also about doing something you're good at. And and that's really, you become passionate about it because everyone loves being good at something and being an expert at your craft is enjoying. I mean, just to be honest, I love podcasting. I love this, the thing, you know, I always say if I could just pay, be paid for doing this all day, like I would. So yes, it's true that kind of, you know, a roundabout way, you know, I'm, you know, it helps towards the business that I do and stuff like that. But if I could just sit on the, you know, be like a radio host or something like that, I I definitely do that. So if anyone's listening out there that has any connections. (laughs) So it's funny you say that because I thought, that, you know, and I know you for years and years, you know, the famous uh, Jonas, Jonah Weiss, I thought you woke up one day and you're like, oh man, I just love cost segregation. <laughs> this just speaks to me. I, I can live for cost segregation, you know, going through the line yeah. items and speeding up the depreciation. Of course. Not, what, what's better than- Honestly, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a cost segregation expert. Like that was, that was always the goal. And, you know, I'm very blessed to be- uh, you know, to live out the dream. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure your first grade teacher, when she asked you, uh, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you said, I want to be the king of cost sex. They, uh, no, I'm, I'm sure you no. got a, a plus 10 on your test for that. Yeah. Look at me now. Look at me now. <laughs> I, mean, I want to transition now to what you call the final four. These are four questions I ask all my guests. First question to you, 
what is the worst job that you ever had? So the worst job, this is going to be a little bit embarrassing. Uh, I was in a camp and <laughs> I was in a camp and I was there for a couple of years and I thought I deserved a promotion. I was young and stupid. Um, not that stupid, not as stupid as other people, you know, because because um, I'm a lot smarter than uh, you know the other people in the camp, obviously. Um, but stupid, relatively speaking. And I felt like I, you know, I, I deserved a promotion. I, I wanted to be a the division head, uh, but the head counselor and I did not get along that well. Um, you know, we were okay, but clearly he had a different intention and. He wanted me to be a counselor. And I said, I don't really want to be a counselor this session. I've been here so many years. Um, so he clearly two egos were budding. So he said, well, what do you want to do? Be transport. And transport was the guy who has the golf cart who drives you know, people from point A to point B. And I said, yeah, <laughs> I want to be trans. Like stick it to you. I want to be transferred. So for the, the last few weeks of that summer, um, that was my job to uh, <laughs> have a golf cart. And turns out that the camp had like two or three golf carts and my golf cart was broken for like 70% of the, uh, you know, the session. Um, so I didn't have a job. I was you know, unemployed. I was just roaming around camp because I was transport, but couldn't drive anyone from point A to point B. Um, so it, it was, it wasn't uh, the greatest of times, but you know, sometimes you get what you bargain for. That's um, funny. That's funny okay. story. A very funny story. That's great. Um, so third, second question, third, fourth, I don't know what number we're up to. I, I lost my train of thought there with that story. But the second question is, what's a book you've read that's given you a paradigm shift? So I, I know, you know, as a, as a Orthodox from Jew, I'm supposed to say one of, uh, you know, one of the Sfarim that we are, were taught from when we were very little, which is true. And I could probably go through a bunch of them that were very, very invaluable and different teachers. But as far as, um, you know, just a, a paradigm shift, you know, it's the perfect word for that question, because there were two books that I read in pretty quick uh, succession. Uh, first was um, How to Win Friends and Influence People which was very popular in my school. And everyone was all excited. We're going to figure out how to influence the world and get everyone to do what we want. And it was an interesting book. And, and, and then I read another book, which is also pretty popular, probably not as popular, uh, which is called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, I imagine someone else must have uh, yeah. had that suggestion on this. Yeah, both of them have been brought up before. But yeah. Yeah. And what I was what I was fascinated by was that in about one page, all the way in the beginning, um, Stephen Covey uh, of Seven Habits and Highly Effectively, uh, Highly Effective People dismisses the entire concept of how to win friends and influence people as manipulative and something you should not get involved in. And instead he proposes you know, a more thought out approach, which is being genuine. And yeah. instead of trying to find what people like so you could get what speaks to them so you could get them to do what you want. Try to develop in yourself. Don't try to change other people and get them to do what you want. Try to change in yourself how you see the world. And if you could see it from their vantage point, if you could develop what he calls a paradigm shift, quite mm -hmm. appropriate for your question, um, and see, see the world the way another person sees it, then you'll, you'll discover that you have a lot in common with those people. And you know, it really just allows for long-term relationships based on, you know, genuine feelings. If I can see the world from your vantage point and understand how you see things, 
we'll, we'll very soon discover that we have a lot more in common than we have, you know, that, that we have that's not in common. And it really just allows for very honest and open relationships and, you know, living your life in a way where you're not worried that you're going to get caught or, you know, someone's going to see that you're, you know, that you're a fraud. It's just a very, very easy way and very calming and peaceful way of living life. I remember recently I was, um, I I opened a a Zoom meeting and it was my turn to share my screen. And one of my friends said, Mayor, you, 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 you did something. You, you missed the boat on that. When you open your screen, you have to make sure that all your tabs were closed. <laughs> Who knows what kind of tab you have open. And now you're going to share it with everyone in the meeting. And I said, Max, I never have any tabs open that I would be embarrassed to share on the meeting. And that was kind of telling in the relationship between, you know, right. me and that associate. Um, but it's just, it's very comforting and it's very, uh, I'm not saying that it's easy necessarily, but again, just being honest and, and doing things where you can learn someone else's vantage point and have nothing to hide and just be open really, really helped me change the way I see things. And, you know, it, it's even till this day, my wife tells me all the time that uh, if someone else is, the babysitter is asking for more money babysitter came late i'm very quick to say okay what you know brush it aside no no big deal she deserves it she's coming from a place where you know maybe she was like because she had this excuse or that excuse like let's not dwell on it um just try to see you know where she's coming from and and move on absolutely the inside out approach works much better yeah both awesome books but appreciate the seven habits definitely uh been brought up before uh Third question, what's a skill or talent that you would like to learn? A skill or talent that I would like to learn. There's a, there's a bunch of ways I can answer this. Um, what comes to mind initially is fencing. Um, even though it's not very practical, I'm not even sure how much exercise you get from, from fencing. Um, but you know, that, that was something that for some reason, you know, it's one of the, the age old uh, People have been fighting with swords ever since uh, ever since swords were created, which I think probably like one of the first things that uh, that were ever created. Um, but I, I I believe I had a better answer for this. I was told coding is really important nowadays, right? Um, but you know, I, I'm pretty comfortable. Like the way I see these kind of things is if there's something out there worth pursuing, I try and pursue it, and otherwise, you know, I'm happy without it. Um, so, you know, to answer your question, it depends how old I am. I guess today I'd probably like to be, uh, maybe better in coding. I'd love to be in the NBA, although I'm past my prime, um, I'm turning 35. Um, that would have been really, really fun. I, I really thought at, at certain points that I would make it to the NBA, but like, like as a, like as an owner, you mean like, uh, so that's the plan now. <laughs> <laughs> that's the plan now, but um, but you know, to play in the NBA would have been really fun. They they don't uh, you know, you don't really find short Jewish boys, you know, uh, playing in the NBA. But that would have been nice. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Definitely. Definitely. What to strive for. <laughs> exactly. Um, fourth and final question: What does success mean to you? So this is a great question because. I've for for many years now I've been caught up in this um this cycle like this never ending cycle of so what would happen if you made a million dollars tomorrow if you're in real estate 
so sometimes if you're doing okay, if you're doing well, that can happen. And the minute you find that million dollars, you obviously put it into real estate. Right. Okay. So let's level up. What happens if you make five or $10 million tomorrow? Okay. Same answer. Put it into real estate. So, so where does this end? Does it end with 50 million? Does it end with a hundred million? Is it 3 billion? At a certain point, it's just a big game and it's, it's a never ending game. So, so ultimately what is the goal? And I think, I think the answer to the goal is that success is not how much money you have. It's a little cliche, but to me, success is utilizing your time as efficiently as possible. So for some people, you know, the, the paradox that I find with this kind of question is, you know, some people could strive to make $10 million or $100 million, whatever it is, and, and they could do a lot of good with that, you know, with that money, right. a lot of good, they could feed a lot of hungry people, they could enhance education, they, they could do all sorts of wonderful things. And, and those are, you know, dreams of grandeur, which are wonderful. Is that impact more significant than the impact that a singular teacher could have on a singular student? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know because in the grand scheme, it seems like a lot of glory. But when you boil things down, the impact that one person can have is really, really tremendous. So, you know, to me, success means having the stability where I'm not concerned, I'm not worried. Where's my next meal going to come from? Where's my next mortgage payment going to come from? Um, and if I'm worried about you know, next year's finances or 10 years from now's finances, then it just goes to the next generation. Okay, I'm good for the next 50 years, but what about my kids? Oh, I covered that. Well, what about my grandkids and their grandkids? Um, so it could really drive people mad. So I think people really need to take a step back and try to figure what are we striving for and what is, you know, what is success and articulate it. Um, Clayton Christensen, who was um he was a Mormon professor. Are you familiar with uh, Clay Christensen? No. Oh. He was phenomenal. You should check out some of his some of his videos on uh, on YouTube. He actually died a couple within the past few years. He was a professor of business at Harvard, and this was his central point of how do you define success? And success in his life was his morals, his time with his family, the basics. But he clung to it. And anytime he had a job and that demanded that he blur those lines, he was he was a rock. And he gave essays and seminars on this. He eventually had his he at one point he had a stroke and he forgot how to speak English. And he went to the local airport and he bought Rosetta Stone to learn English from scratch. But he was he was like a fascinating individual. And it was really these basic ideas of, yeah, we don't want to be miserable. We don't want to worry about where our next meal is going to come from or where our next mortgage payment will will come from. But it's critical to understand that my time is limited, no matter how much money I have, how little money I have, the time is finite and you only get one shot at the next moment you have in life. So make it count. And for me personally, that means working a portion of the day, spending time, you know, setting time aside, spend time with my family to study, be involved in godly pursuits, things like that, um, and just finding the right balance. So to me, you know, that's the day I look forward to when I could slow down my schedule a little bit more than it is now and, uh, you know, really enjoy using my time, you know, to the maximum level of efficiency. Love it. Amazing answer. Very well thought out and well uh, well articulated. So I appreciate that, Mayor. Where can our listeners find you or reach out to you? They can find me or reach out on my website, lightwatercapital.com. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. I respond to direct messages. Um, you know, I'm 
I, I'm not, I try to be a bit of a private person. If you meet me in the street, you'll probably think that I'm upset about something or that I, I, I don't want to. And that's usually because like a small talk just doesn't work well with me unless, unless you're a great guy like you, uh, Yana Weiss. Um, but, you know, I'm, I, I try to keep an open dialogue, you know, happy to help uh, wherever I can, wherever I have expertise or anything like that. Um, always an open book and you know, happy to make new relationships. And you know, if I if I can't uh, further my career, if I could further someone else's career, even if there's nothing in it for me, that's fine. Um, you know, trying to do the next uh, the next right thing. Awesome. So please reach out to me. All right. We'll make sure to put that in the show notes. It's been a pleasure. Mayor, thank you so much for joining us and spending the time with us today. And uh, to our listeners, thank you all for listening in. And I hope you got something out of this episode. I sure did. And remember, the best advice comes only when you ask. Real quick, I have one question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I want to ask you a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message to the whole world is that if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this podcast is out on is that you like my stuff and I'm doing something right. So take a few seconds out of your day, hit that subscribe button, leave a rating or review. I would be extremely grateful. Also, I want to hear from you guys. So I want to hear some feedback. If you have any questions for future episodes, please find me on LinkedIn. Send me a DM, a connection request, Yona Weiss, and I'd love to hear from you.